0: This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. I think you would all agree that uh, in the annals of the Islamic Revolution, uh, few events match in terms of their calamity and in terms of the consequences and in terms of the lingering bitter uh, impact that they have left. Uh, are comparable to the hostage crisis, the taking of American diplomats as hostage and keeping them for 444 days. Our guest has uh, the unusual distinction of having been only one of the two women who was kept. The other woman, as some of you would remember, were released early on uh, because she had a high position. Uh, She suffered and was kept for the entire period. She was, at the time of the revolution, the director of the famous Anjumana Iran-Amrikar. I think Professor Fry has talked there many a time. Uh, Anjumana Iran-Amrikar, the Society of uh, Iranian-American Society, uh, had a very well-known library. It was a place where many cultural events took place. And uh, she directed that on the eve of the revolution. She is a professional diplomat, foreign service. uh, And after Iran, she served for another 18 years in other places. I tried to get her to tell me which one was her favorite, and she refused. Uh, She has written an experience at the time about her uh, uh, captivity. as she will tell us about it, and uh, she thought uh, when we talked about the format, she said she will talk for uh, a few minutes and then she will try to answer questions and that 's what the format that she uh, preferred and I, I would also like to uh, thank uh, Firuzea Dumas, who uh, kindly introduced us to Ms Koops and arranged made sure that we are wise enough to arrange us here. So uh, it's good. Thank you very
1: much. I'll start over here, and then I'll come there. See how long my feet hold out. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for inviting me to California in the middle of an Iowa winter. This has been one of the most miserable winters in terms of weather that I can remember in just ages and ages and ages. And it isn't the snow. This year we've had a lot of ice with the snow, and it would be sort of a quarter to a half to an inch and a half thick on the sidewalk and we get a snowfall on top of it. And whoops, there we went. as, uh, it, it's an honor for me to be here. And when Feruze first talked to me about this, and by the way, you should know, Feruze and I became friends and met because my nephew works with her brother, and the two men decided that the two of us really deserved each other. So I had a chance to hear Feruze speak in Wisconsin, and we spent some time together, and she decided that I needed to come to California, and uh, she contacted Dr. Milani, and I had the distinct honor of being invited to come and talk to this group. Now... I appreciate that honor very much, and I thought very hard and very long about what I could talk about. And I actually went on the website to see what it had to say about this evening, and I was so glad when I saw the title, A Former Hostage Talks About Her Impression of U.S.-Iran Relations. Okay, that I can handle. I am not an Iranian scholar. I became interested and fascinated with Iran when I was first assigned there, and that would have been back in 1976 and 76-77. Uh, I went back to Washington and took 44 weeks of Farsi. Farsi sobatkanam, faramush kardam. I can ask. Chai Hastid and be Beitashwi Baram. So, but aside from that, I have forgotten so much. Except I was trying to actually think Kali Shoma Ceture, and then I kept coming up. Now, wait a minute. Bine, but that's Romanian. Is that also Farsi? Bine? Bine? Bine a, 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 okay. Persian a bath. Oh, a bath. All right. See, I can't even remember what the proper response is. But, um, I found in my study, in the time I was preparing to go to Iran to this incredible position as the director of the Iran America Society, that it was an absolutely fascinating culture. And I was lucky enough to talk to people who were in Washington, who had been in and who had loved Iran with a passion. And they were So excited about being able to go back and so fascinated with the history, the culture, the stories, that it was soon very easy for me to catch that kind of enthusiasm. I remember one of the things that was recommended to me, and actually my mom bought it for me after I came home, was that wonderful big book that's called The Turquoise Bridge and it's still in my library. I've always been fascinated with the miniatures and with the um, calligraphy that surrounds them, and that was one of the things that I uh, took a special interest in. I am not a policy wonk. I am not a political officer. My entire 27 and a half years were spent in public diplomacy. Primarily in the field of um, cultural exchange and educational exchange. I loved working with Fulbright programs. I loved being able to put people in touch with other people so that they could make the contacts that they wanted and do the things that they wanted. And I always felt that I'd done my job when I could give somebody the address and the phone number of somebody in the United States that would help them have a better fare, a better exposition, um, and it covered the garment in terms of putting people together. That's what I loved, and that's what I love doing. And so maybe it's not any wonder that my favorite story from Iran has to do with the board of the Anjuman. I arrived there in July, and at the time that I arrived, there was still a very strict curfew, and it was very difficult to know exactly what we could and couldn't do. Um, As Dr. Milani said, it was a huge place. At the time of the takeover, we had 3,500 students studying English there and um, my deputy, whose name I still can't think of, you know, it's 30 years and I'm getting to be an old lady, you'll have to forgive me, But um, I can see him, and he lives, he's from Texas, and I'll get his name before the evening's over. But he was in charge of all of these English language students, and we were just beginning to wonder if we should reinstitute our Farsi uh, language program, because there were more people trickling back into Tehran, and we perceived a need for uh, opening that program up again. But things were moving very, very slowly. Could I show this movie? On, um, and to understand what we're talking about, the Anjuman itself had the library of some 10,000 volumes that has already been mentioned. But we also had a performance space that seated about 250 to 300 people. And it was perfect for film, for concerts, or for theatrical productions. One of the last things that I was able to do was um, invite a troupe of um, Iranian um, young theater professionals to do a dramatization of um, the traditional tale about the big turnip and everybody in the village trying to pull the turnip. And that was running very successfully at the time of the takeover. Um, We also had two huge art galleries, and so it was a very, very going program. The Fulbright Commission had their offices in our building, and so there were lots of things going on and lots of things to do. Our board was beginning to reassemble, and we had to find new members because, of course, so many American expatriates had gone. But we did have a compliment, and as it turned out, one of our first board meetings I'd been meeting with board members individually. I'd gotten there July 19. Our first board meeting was on October 8th, And we had a lovely, lovely meeting. And after lunch, as we came back into the boardroom, the chairman of our board, who happened to be Iranian, stood up and said, Um, McCobb, we understand this is a special day for you. And it was. It was my birthday. And he said, we have these for you. And he gave me this beautiful, beautiful bouquet of flowers. Well, now, I don't have to tell you that Iranians know how to do flowers as well as anybody in the world. But my favorite part of this whole thing was what he had to say as he handed me the flowers. You've only recently come to our country, and we've just begun to know each other. And we're beginning to appreciate and love you the way you are beginning to appreciate and love us. You know, that memory for me is what Iran is. And in September, I was asked to serve on a panel with a group of people who had done a common read of the graphic novel Persepolis. And I was on the panel with an Iranian businessman from Wilmington, North Carolina. And when he first talked about who and what Iranians are, he echoed that and all I could think of was that bouquet of flowers and those words because he said, first of all, I want you to know what Iranians are. We're people who love life. And I think more than anything else, that is the most important message that we can give people when we have an opportunity to talk to people and i've thought about that board meeting and maybe i'll use that board meeting as a metaphor for a few remarks about what i think we might be able to do first of all boards don't necessarily act in haste they take time as dr and I think it was Dr. Armani who was the board chair at that point, said we are beginning to get to know each other. Americans particularly settle on first impressions, and that's about the size of it. Um, And then you discover that your first impression was A, right, or B, wrong, and you have to go back to the drawing board. But we make instant and snap decisions instead of letting a relationship grow and develop. Now... It's been almost 30 years since all of this happened. 29 years in November. That's been a lot of time. But time doesn't do anything if you're not using that time positively. And I want to say to my country and my country's officials, get over it. Talk to the people. Now, I know there's been a diplomatic dance of going back and forth where we've offered, they've offered, and that's fine. But let's listen when an offering is made. And so I think one of the most important things we can do is to begin the dialogue. Before I came, I talked to Bruce Langen, who was the charge d'affaires at the embassy at the time, and to John Limbert. Now, um, Bruce was at the foreign ministry um, for the 444 days. And John is probably our best expert in um, Iranian-US relations in the State Department. And he's currently a distinguished professor, and I'll have to look at the title. Um, He is currently the distinguished professor um, of um, uh, international affairs at the US Naval Academy. And one of the things that he's been working on is writing a book about negotiation with the Iranians. And uh, he has some interesting things to say. But I think it's important that both he and Bruce Langen, who have, I think, the best interests of both our countries at heart and who really loved what we were doing and what was important for us, believe it's important that we talk to each other. I do, too. All I can think of is that how many years did we try and ignore the Chinese, and, you know, we ended up playing ping pong with them and one thing led to another. Well, I don't know whether ping pong's the thing that'll open things up, but um, maybe some good exchange of good cooking would uh, because there's certainly, uh, there's certainly something there. But uh, it is time for us to talk to each other and it's time for us to realize that it's going to take time, that just simply talking isn't going to do it. The other thing that I think we need to do And it's not true, it's only in the U.S.-Iranian relations, but it's true in every set of relations we have. Interpersonal relations, organization to organization, what's going on right now in your schools here in California with the budget cuts and all of this sort of stuff. And that's to sort out the difference between truth and perception. Everybody says, well, we've got the truth, we want to deal with the truth. Truth is very elusive. And I think one of the questions we have to ask is, whose truth? And so if we can begin to understand that we can only begin when we know what the perceptions of truth are, that would be an important first step. We may not agree, but it doesn't do any good to just disagree You also have to be willing to listen and to understand why someone believes that this is the truth. I remember when I was first in Africa, um, this was in the 70s, and of course one of the big items for the independent countries in Africa was American investment in South Africa because, of course, that was the time of strongest apartheid. And I remember my boss from Washington coming out. And I was very new at this foreign service game at that point. I was probably only in my second year. And he was sitting across the table from me and from my boss and was talking about, well, you know, you just tell them that it's very minimal. And it's this. And I looked up at him and said, not knowing that I really should have cleared this with my boss first, but it doesn't matter if it's only a dime. What really matters is the perception, the understanding that we have investment of any kind in South Africa. And he sort of did a double take, and my boss gave me one of those shut up and don't say anything else looks. And um, and then afterwards, he called me and he said, you know, I wish you'd cleared that with me beforehand. But um, Gordon, our boss from Washington, said, maybe she's got a point. And I think that we have to look at the underlying causes of things, that we have to be willing to understand more than, um, than what is on the surface. So we have to be willing to look at the variance between perception and truth, or perceived truth, or whose truth, or what is truth. And I think that somebody's still out there with a lamp looking for it, isn't he? Um, there are all kinds of things about that. I think one of the most important things we can do is identify mutual goals. And I should certainly think that one of the mutual goals is that both of our nations have enough work to do to develop the infrastructure in our countries that all of the time and energy we spend sniping at each other could be put to much better use on all kinds of social in, um, social welfare programs, um, in terms of education, all kinds of things. What are the things that are mutually important for us? This gentleman that I spoke of from in Wilmington said, we like the good life, we like to eat well, we like to be with our families, we like to enjoy each other's companies. How can we do that and say, let's focus on these things? What can we do to make our lives better for all of our people, not for just a few? And there are some practical outcomes, I think. We need to begin to train experts. I was pretty shocked to read in some of the background reading that I was doing that there's probably almost no one at State Department anymore who has ever served in Iran. And for the past 30 years, we've not trained people in uh, Farsi. We've not trained people in um, Iranian literature and history. And it's going to take a long time to catch up. Now, thank goodness, there are a whole lot of people like you who haven't quit training. And someday, I hope that you'll be able to step up and say, hey, we're here, and we can do this. We need new experts. We need people who have a passion and a compassion. Barry Rosen, who was the press attache at the embassy while I was there, and I, um, one day, one of our weekends, Barry said to me, Kate, there's supposed to be a big demonstration today. Would you like to go and see what one of these demonstrations looks like? I said, yeah, that'd be cool. So Barry and I went down and stood on a street corner And this was in 1979, probably sometime in September or October. It was a day almost like today outside. And we watched as thousands and thousands and thousands of people walked, rode very slowly in automobiles, and silently and together demonstrated their belief in the Islamic Republic. After we had watched for some time we walked back to the car and we were headed back to um, our homes and we were quiet and I finally said to Barry Barry this revolution is very very real I'm not sure what it is but there was something in the spirit of those people walking today that talked to the spirit in my heart. And he looked at me sort of startled and he said, you too? Barry grew up in an Orthodox Jewish home. I grew up in, if there is such a thing, an Orthodox Lutheran home. And both of us standing there in the early stages of the revolution felt something in our heart that touched our spiritual being. I was excited about going to Iran. I thought the potential for the Islamic Republic was incredibly good. So often, I'd been in Africa, and revolution means one person of poverty succeeds another person of poverty, with promises that can't be kept, no ways of developing anything. But in Iran, There was a cadre of people, engineers, lawyers, doctors, social workers, anybody, any profession you needed who had been trained and were anxious to go back and go to work. I thought it would be extraordinary to be there and to see how the new Islamic Republic developed. It was, but it didn't happen the way I thought it would. So we have to also train people to understand that there is a difference between beliefs and practices. There were some things it took me a long time to understand. For instance, one of the things while I was there, um, I used the time, I understood finally, after a couple of weeks, that I'd been given an extraordinary gift of time. There were no newspapers, no magazines, no appointments, no telephones. I had nothing but time. One of the things that had always fascinated me, probably because I was a Lutheran, was the Roman Catholic contemplative orders, people who chose not to speak. Well, I hadn't chosen not to speak. I was told don't to speak. Um, Oh, that was okay. But I realized I had been given this extraordinary gift of time. And so for me, I began to use it in my own spiritual development and developing my own curiosity and exploring the curiosity I had about this form of spiritual devotion. And it always seemed to me, hands folded, eyes closed, head bowed, that the young women who are our guards should know I was praying and they should leave me alone but they kept interrupting me, not in a bad way, but it, you know something needed, something needed happening, and I kept trying to figure this out, until I realized that in their own prayers, if they had done uh, their proper preparation and had come into the room and were kneeling at prayer, um, and a knock came at the door, and one of the brothers, um, that's generally who it was, or one of the other sisters needed to talk to them, They could interrupt their prayers as long as they didn't touch anything and as long as they didn't stop facing Mecca and back up to the door and take care of whatever needed to be done, and it was okay. All right, practices and understandings. There's a difference between beliefs and practices, and it's being willing to take the time, being willing to have the passion and the interest and I'm awfully glad that there's so many of you who do. Now, I know that's maybe not what you expected, but those are the things that are on my heart. And those are the things that I thought I might talk about. And if there are some specific things that you'd like to hear about, I'll be glad to answer questions. And I'm going to move over to the chair. at the time, and how do you feel about their um, denouncing of their actions or them saying that they probably made some mistakes along the way? Hooray, we all grow up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this was an action that was done by university students. And, um, you know, look at what's going on in our own country right now in terms of university support for Barack Obama. It's it's something that has grown and grown, and people are asking more questions about, and um, it, I mean, they're different things. But again, university students, it's their job to ask questions. It's their job to try and change things and to engender change, I think. How awful if you were like little blotters and only you know took what we said at face value and didn't challenge things. And I think part of it was simply hindsight is always... Uh, more interesting, or, or there's always better value in hindsight. Uh, part of what I did while I was there during this period of meditation was um, I was given a Bible at Christmas time the first year. And so, uh, given my background, I spent a lot of time reading the Bible. And one of the things that challenged me and that I spent a lot of time working on is a passage in Luke chapter 6 that says, Love your enemies. It doesn't say try to love your enemies, do your best to love your enemies, think about loving your enemies. It says love your enemies. And then just in case you didn't get the message, about 17 verses later, there it is again, love your enemies. So I spent a lot of time working through that while I was in Iran. Okay, I'm going to love these kids. Right. They were kids to me. They were university students, and I was in, I was what, uh, 40, 41, something like that, 79, okay, I was 41, 42, 43, you know, headed toward 43. Um, And I went through a whole process, but the upshot of it was that all of the angerness, bitterness, hatred, resentment stayed behind in Iran. Oh, dear, maybe I should have brought it home. No, Um, but for me, That had all been sorted before I left. I have not had to spend the last 20, what is it, 29 years now almost, uh, dealing with anger and bitterness. Um, And I didn't really understand. I was asked, well, do you love your enemies? And I said, I don't know. But if it means an uh, an absence of anger, bitterness, hatred, resentment, yes, then I love my enemies. Now I said, if one of them walked through that door, I'm not sure what I would do if I recognize them at this point. but um, And then I realized, 25 years later, when I was teaching a course in reconciliation, that it's God's grace. This was a gift of God. And it's not really something I can understand, but it is the Spirit of God working in my life. And no, I can't do it by myself. But for me, as a practicing Christian, it's God's gift to me that says, you don't have to carry this burden. And so that's kind of how I came out. So when one of them makes a statement like that, I'm proud of them in a way. Because I think it shows a different level of thinking, a different choice that they might make as we're older. You know, been my country, I'd have been, probably been out there yelling too. Um, it. it We tend to do things that we think are important at the time, and we're not always looking to the long-range consequences. Does that answer your question? Yes. Uh, You you were there when, I mean, in the center of all these events, and when you came back to America, let's say two or three years later, looking at this event from outside, do you get a sense
0: that media you know, made it bigger than it was?
1: Oh, absolutely. Media always does. And, I mean, you know, Ted Koppel made his fortune on us. Thank you very much. You know, day one, I will continue this broadcast until they're brought home. Well, you know, he got to retire because we did come home. But um, uh, oh, only a couple of years ago. Uh, and I did not expect that to happen. Because I thought we would probably be front-page stories for uh, you know, a week or so, and then we'd get shoved off the front pages by other things that went on, and maybe sort of, oh, by the way, it's been three months since our hostages were taken in Iran, and the, you know, or a year they'd trot out the story. Had no idea it would become the media circus back here that it did. And um, if any of you ever do work um, in the media, I would like you to consider very carefully what's ethical. Um, At the time, I had a niece who was in kindergarten and my sister received a phone call from her school. There is a reporter here who says she has permission to interview Susie. My sister said, no way, I will come and get her. They said, no, we'll we'll take care of it. But can you imagine going into a grade school to try and get an interview with a six-year-old child? another reporter um, who was working with my sister and her husband although they didn't really she'd snuck in under the guise of being sort of a friendly neighbor kind of thing gave my eleven-year-old nephew a tape recorder and said would you just put this down and when your mom and dad are talking about your aunt kate will you just record what they say you might want to listen to it again someday and so he took the tape recorder to his mother and said mom so-and-so gave me this tape recorder and said, and Annabeth said, well, did you say thank you for the gift? And he said, yes. She said, good, it's your gift, you take it to your room and it stays in your room. I thought she handled it very well. Um, So, uh, I think there was a lot um, and again, um, dealing with perceptions, it took me a long time to understand that a beard was part of the culture, or a partial beard was part of the culture in many ways. Um, And You know, people get all bent out of shape because Obama put on a turban. Um, Lots of people have gone to Africa, and um, I I know it's not the same thing, but when I lived and worked in Africa, I tied the fabric as well as the the women in in the area where I was living and working, partly to honor them, and partly because I was really attracted by what some of those headdresses looked like. So uh, we have such a has nothing to do with the hostages or anything else. But when I was in Los Angeles, this headline, droughts in the Middle West will cost $5 billion in fuel projections with ethanol. I said, tell them to relax. There hasn't been that kind of a drought in the Midwest for 90, oh, well, there were three years. Yeah, we've had minor droughts, but the corn production hasn't. What's really happening is that all of a sudden, the farmers are being paid for their corn what they ought to be paid for their corn, um, which hadn't changed. The only reason farmers made more money was because they didn't increase production. The price of a bushel of corn had not changed much since World War II. Everything else. Well, you know, farmers are going to charge more. Farmers don't get to charge more. They sell their grain when they think it's the most advantageous, but they don't get to tell somebody, oh, well, I won't sell it for $245. you are going to have to give me $250. uh uh doesn't work that way. So I think that there is an alarmist um, position that the media often takes um, and I think sometimes they will write things that exacerbate situations and uh, I think if you're going to be a journalist um, being ethical is one of the most important things that you can bring to your skills. I think you had a question and then back there. Yes, I was held from November, 9, uh, November. what was it, 4 or 5, 1979, until we were released in January of 1981.
0: Yes? And I was just curious to see what was the aftermath of that, I mean, several U.S. servicemen died. Perhaps if this plan was carried out, many, many Iranians and U.S. servicemen would have died. Many of the hostages' lives were in danger. So what was going on right
1: after when this thing happened? Okay. Um, There was an awful lot of gunfire around the embassy. We knew something had gone on, but we didn't know what had happened. We didn't actually find out until July. And in July, our um, guards gave us some back issues of Time and Newsweek. All the U.S.-Iranian stories had been torn out, but they forgot the table of contents and the letters to the editor. And when you haven't seen a news magazine for a while, you read every word from volume 22, number 6 on the front cover to the last word. And so we found out, actually, um, that people had died trying to rescue us. And that was, I have never found a word, never, ever, ever. And I've thought about this for 30 years now almost. Any word except stunned that people gave their lives for us. Um, I have a very unpopular position because I agree with you. I think had they made it to the embassy, um, there, would have been, there could very well have been a bloodbath. At one point, the man uh, who became uh, one of the officials in the foreign ministry, has the gap in his teeth, who we called because we didn't know his name. We called him Tooth. Uh, well, you know, okay. that's, um, uh, And I suppose it was a little disrespectful, but that's how we identified him. Um, came into our room, and when I'm saying our, I'm talking about Anne Swift and me. Anne and I were together until Thanksgiving. That would be November 22, the first year. Then we were held separately until March 12. Uh, and then we became roommates again, and uh, he came into our room um, oh sometime in August and said, "Oh, you're going to give me a nervous breakdown." And I said, "So send us home, you know." And oh well, we can't do that when the Shah dies. And I said, "The Shah is dead. How did you know?" And I said, "You just told me." Um, and you know, we knew when we went to Iran that the Shah was terminally ill. And um, we did not expect that he would live more than six months, I think, from the time we went. And I'm not sure when he did die, but it was six to eight months after um, the July date when I left. And so... um, uh, I took a gamble on that, and he said so. But the immediate aftermath was that all of the men, or many of the men, were moved out of the compound, and they were moved to various places around the country. Anne and I and approximately five or six men were left in the compound. One of those was Richard Queen. And here, I mean, you know, come on. Um, <sighs> Richard Queen was not well. They took him to a clinic, And Iranian doctors, bless their souls, said, you know, he needs to go home. We cannot be responsible for keeping him alive. They knew what he had. He had MS. And it is a degenerative disease, and it is aggravated by... But these Iranian doctors put their own careers on the line so that Richard Queen could be sent to Switzerland and home. Now, you know, how can you... How can you be anything but um, accepting of such a generous, generous offer? Uh, So he was one of the ones in the compound and a couple of other people who might have had some problems. We never saw the men. Um, We did get a couple of notes from them. One of them was a vegetarian. And at one point somebody came in and said, you cook, don't you, Hannah McComb? I'm the oldest of six girls. Of course I cook. I grew up on a farm. I can milk cows, too, and um, didn't have to do that. So we cooked for, Ann and I cooked for ourselves and for the four or five men that we never saw. But we would get a note and said, one of them is a vegetarian. Could you do huevos rancheros one night for us? And, well, there was a library that had been brought from the American school, and they found a cookbook for us, and we checked it out, and we did sort of a kind of a version of huevos rancheros for the for the guy. So I, it's a strange collection, a strange combination. And yet, on the other hand, one of our guards would walk in, a young woman, who would've, had she been told to, would've executed us. I am convinced. Walked in on the one-year anniversary of the takeover, handed us a plate of candy, and said, Mark thank you, death to the Americans. And whapped, that candy went flying, and the plate went flying, and so did, and she sort of did a double take, and Anne said, I don't care, you know, uh, that you want to say that, but she said that kind of hypocrisy of offering us sweets and then saying that kind of thing, she said, I find unacceptable. And so in some respects, Anne was very brave. Um, Anne, by the way, is no longer living. She died in a horse riding accident. She loved to ride. She married after she came back to the States, long, uh, was quite a few years afterwards. And she lived in uh, rural Virginia with her husband, and they loved to ride. And they were out riding one day, and her horse stumbled or shied, and she went off. And uh, she's no longer living, and I miss her very much. She's a great lady. Uh, and then, uh, yes, You
0: actually just kind of answered
1: my question. Okay. I was uh, wondering if you had any other interesting uh, uh, one-to-one relationships with uh, with your captors? Um, The things that happened were incidental to what was going on. And um, one day, I'm not sure, this was before Anne and I became roommates, and it must have been in early March. It was one of those times when they thought they might move us all to the foreign ministry. We did not hear as many rumors as our parents did. And I said sometimes I think it was easier being a hostage than being the family of one of the hostages because of course back here they'd get calls. Oh, we've heard, we've heard. And you know, mother would say, you'll have to check with State Department. But she did say one time she was glad she had name recognition. After the um, rescue attempt, they showed the pictures of the bodies of some of the servicemen who had been killed. And my mother thought it was just deplorable. And so she actually called one of the stations that was doing it on a regular basis and said, you know, my daughter is one of the hostages. And I think what you're doing to the families of these men who tried to save my daughter is horrible. Take those pictures off. And they did. So, you know, yay, mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can have an influence on the press. I think that's, that's important to say, too. But at any rate, it was in March, and uh, it, things were just uncomfortable. I, I'm not sure why. And this one young woman who was one of our guards, and I'd worked with her on her English. When we first went, the university was open and functioning. And a lot of the students were science students. And this one particular young woman was a pre-med student, and she was working on her English uh, pre-med vocabulary. Well have you ever tried to explain urinary tract when you don't speak the language? And um, so, But she got it, we, we figured it out and um, through the help of diagrams and, and motions and other words we, we managed to figure it out. When I first went to Iran I probably spoke Farsi at sort of a two plus three level. Um, in in that general area, because they generally don't uh, send us out uh, unless we kind of speak at that area, but it went downhill rapidly because I wasn't using it, basically. Um, But at any rate, um, this young woman was, I think, would have made an excellent doctor, and she was a a very patient and a very charming um, young woman and very intelligent. And I must have let loose with a really big sigh or something, and she came over and just put her arm around my shoulder and said, don't worry, Hanama Kobe, it's gonna be okay. So again, you know, there was that, at least among the women, there, there was that kind of rapport sometimes. Uh, another story, a totally different kind of story. Um, one of the young gals came bouncing into the room and she had pictures of her nephew. And I said, oh, he's cute. You must have a lot of fun playing with him. Well, I don't get to see him very often. And I said, you don't? And she said, no, he's at the University of Oklahoma with my brother. And I said, oh, OK. Uh, and she said, yeah, my brother came home at Christmas time and stood guard duty at the embassy. Okay. And I said, OK. And I'm thinking, and how did he get back into the United States? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Did he go through Mexico or whatever? But I, So there were all kinds of different things that happened. And I would also remind you that the stories that I tell are my stories. One of the things that we talk about very clearly and we talked about before um, or right after our release is that I cannot tell you the stories of the men who had much different treatment than I did. Some of them were quite brutally beaten. Some of them did have problems. And they tell their stories. And um, I know one of the wives was very angry with me because of the kinds of stories that I might tell, which were quite different than the stories she heard from her husband. And that particularly came out, I think, when uh, the current president of Iran's picture was first flashed up on the screen. Quite independently, about five of us said, know that puppy, he was on the embassy compound. We did not talk to each other but independently, four or five of us said, yes, he was there. Now, he may not have been part of the initial takeover, which is what he said. I have no problems with that. There were a lot of people there, but think about it for just a minute. A young, politically ambitious person, where was the action in Tehran? It was at the embassy. And look at the number of people, as you've mentioned, who subsequently become um, officials in the government. Um, and I know one of my colleagues, I've heard him tell the story, said, I will never forget that man. Um, and this colleague has a son who has uh, um, a mental uh, deficiency. I don't know whether he's down syndrome, or, but it's something similar to that. And this particular individual threatened his um, less than normal son. He said, you don't forget somebody like that. And um, yeah, I know it's all part of the rhetoric and all part of the game, but you really don't forget things like that. And I tried very hard to remember. I just Before he was elected, I saw his picture, and I said, I know he was on the compound. I know it. And people said, well, how did you know? And I said, well, look, I've looked at a lot of pictures of a lot of Iranians over the last you know 25 years 26 years and i said that's the first time i've had that kind of visceral reaction that said uh i know that person was on the compound unless it was somebody who identified themselves and said like mary or um uh the um, man who keeps wanting to come to the un um and uh, uh but this just from the picture and i think To the best of my recollection, Anne and I had been taken out into the courtyard, which was an inner courtyard, nobody could see anything, uh, to be taken out into the fresh air for a short period of time. And we were wearing trousers and uh, sweaters. And when we went out in the sun, we pulled our sleeves up like this and actually pulled our trousers up just to get some sun. He was out through the courtyard. How dare you desecrate our Islamic principles? How dare you show so much skin and things like that? I mean, it was a very little thing, but I'm sure that it was he. And it shows how important to him rules are. And there are many things that are different. Yes?
0: I have got two questions. One, you said that you knew when you went that the shop was uh, very sick. Right
1: uh that was in july of 1979 yeah. 79 yeah oh, mm-hmm. okay. yeah I you went so again, no i went into farsi language training in uh 78 i got there in oh, july the of of 79 yes mm-hmm. after after the embassy drawdown and, um uh, and so on so i had the do you option know the
0: embassy, uh, do you know when the embassy
1: Probably when he left, but I don't know beforehand. I really don't. Yeah.
0: And and the second was uh, there were lots of rumors that they moved you after that failed... uh,
1: They moved a lot of the men, but they kept Anne and me and five or six others in the embassy compound, so uh, they didn't know what to do with us. I, uh, you know, they didn't have a location for us but they didn't keep us all together and if some of us were there that was fine but the rest were moved around so that we weren't all in one location yes I, I remember reading about you in Mark Dowden's book yes. I was wondering if you could talk about how, how well he did as a, as a journalist on the book. I'll have to admit I've not read the book I know how it ends um, and, so in terms of the interviews then. yes but I did talk to my colleagues who read the book and I've read parts of the book. There are small things that are um, uh, wrong. For instance, my cape was red and not green. And I'm the oldest sister. I don't have an older sister. But those things don't uh, impact the thrust of the book. And my colleagues who have read the book said it's basically accurate. It's basically accurate. Yes. Uh, you mentioned treatment by uh, female guards. Uh huh. And- and we know one of the female guards was Masume Eptekar. He became the vice president under Khotani. Right. Because she's on the videos and she right. was in Was she any of those? Could you identify her? Um, oh, uh, we knew who she was. She was in and out. And she was in a position of leadership among the women um, very much during the time. And she always did, um, and if there were interviews or anything like that, uh, she was the one because her English was incredible. She had gone to school, I believe, at Philadelphia. And um, part of this, part of the, one of the things we can do here is help people understand that different isn't better or worse. I think one of the reasons she was so angry is because her parents were very, um, uh, were very conservative, and they wanted her to wear a headscarf to school. And it made life pretty miserable, as you can imagine it might, for a little girl who was forced to wear a headscarf in an american society that wasn't used to headscarves at all and that would have been you know in the sixties probably so um and at least that was one of the stories that we heard um but yes we saw her several times and she was she was very much involved Uh uh-huh yeah she really was yeah so listen you've been a marvelous audience and i see it's almost seven o'clock if there are any more questions, I'll be glad to talk to you. Yes? I just one last question. So I don't think, um, from what you said, you were either at a point where you thought you, know, you were under um, severe danger, or you felt your life in severe danger, or you felt completely fine. In that spectrum, where were you? What was the um, feeling between the hostages? We didn't know. It was a feeling, and I think it was much, much closer to the danger than it was to being comfortable. You accommodate a lot. And when I saw pictures of the interviews that were done and I looked at it, I could tell how much tension I was under, looking at the videos of me that were taken at Christmas time and at Easter and the second Christmas or at Easter and the second Christmas, wherever. Um, And as Anne said, uh, when she talked to the Red Cross workers, we are afraid every day for our lives. And they said, what do you mean? You know, What have we done to you? And she said, well, wouldn't we be foolish not to be afraid every day for our lives? We don't know what's going to happen. You can do anything to us that you want to do. My greatest fear was that somebody would do something stupid, that somebody would flip out. And it could have been either an American or an Iranian because both sides were under tremendous pressure. And um, as a matter of fact, there is a story That one of the men, who was one of the guards, uh, went to the Iraqi front, and he was so mean not only to the hostages, but also to the men that he was supposed to lead in Iraq, that he did not come home from Iraq. And it was not the Iraqis that did not let him come home. So there was the potential. And he really was just on, on the edge all the time of wanting to show these people who's in charge. And so that was the biggest fear. That, that was the biggest fear. And I was so grateful that that didn't happen. The,
0: yeah. I have one more question. Sure. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I'm sure you know, uh, rumors about what is called the October surprise. Yes. About the possibility of a deal that was made between the Reagan uh, election team right. and these, uh, the regime. You know. Right. Uh, two-part question, did you know about this and when you were on the tarmac uh-huh. waiting to take off and the plane stood there for a while uh-huh. without any, what explanation did they give
1: you? Um. We didn't care. We weren't asking. We were together. Um, we were seeing each other. I mean, and and we didn't even get a chance to ask the two questions that everybody wanted to ask: Is everybody here and is everybody okay? Because you'd start: Is that ev- yes? Everybody's here. Everybody's okay. Meaning nobody was carried in on a stretcher or anything like that, um and so we were just so busy trying to catch up and talking with each other and and that kind of thing that I don't think we were even really aware that it was that long before we took off um on on that part and the first part of the question was, Oh, the October surprise! no, we weren't aware of that at least I was not, and as far as I know, Anne was not, and when it came out a couple of years later. I was in Vienna, and I looked at my boss, and I said, oh, thank God I'm not in Washington. And he said, why? And I said, oh, interviews. I'd have to be doing a dozen interviews. He said, who'd want to interview you? Well, the next day, I just put down USA Today in front of him, and there they were talking to all of my colleagues who were in the Washington, New York area, and I said, see? And he looked at me, and he said, that bad, huh? And I said, that bad? Um, You know, I am amazed I am amazed that almost 30 years later, people still are fascinated by the story. I'm still talking about it. One of the things that I do do, and every year I do this, is I work with high school and junior high students who are working on History Day projects. And um, I'll get questions and phone calls. Would I talk about it? And I always say, go read the book. I wrote a book called Guest of the Revolution. It's basically a faith story. It's about how I coped and using what I had been given as a child. Um, It's not a definitive history of uh, the time. I'll let historians do that, but it's simply my personal take on how I managed to live from day to day. And as I said, sometimes from 15 minutes to 15 minutes, things would get really hectic and I'd say, okay, God, just get me through the next 15 minutes. And I don't know why for me 15 minutes was important, but if I could get through the 15 minutes, and I could get through the next 15 minutes. and uh, So there were uh, lots of those kinds of things, and that's what I write about in the book. Uh, I think it's important that kids do know the story, and one of the things that I really uh, have enjoyed is meeting people like Firouze and all of you who have an interest in this and who want to see uh, two countries who have the potential to give so much to the world resolve their differences and move forward. I think that's awfully important for all of us. Yes? Do you feel like your colleagues who were kept captive with you want the two countries to move forward as well, or are there people? I don't speak for my colleagues. So, I know there are some that do. I mean, you know, John Limbert, uh, Barry Rosen said, I love this country. I spent, and he had been there as a Peace Corps volunteer, and, and he loved Iran passionately. And so I'm sure there are others, but I really can't speak for them. Okay, thank you.
0: The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.